This is episode 403 of the 200 Churches podcast. So we're talking about cultural identity, how if I think, I may think that uh, reconciliation is when you leave your cultural identity and join my cultural identity. Now we're reconciled. We're all like me. Mm-hmm. And instead, I was thinking and telling Johnny in discussion that maybe we have to all leave our cultural identities and together join this identity called the kingdom of God. Would you think that's somewhat close? I think that's moving in the right direction. I think that it needs to go further, though, for there to be equity and for us to really, I think, understand what God's calling us. So um, two things to say that. One, um, we're not Gnostic. At least I don't think we're Gnostic. Are we Gnostic? This is a non-Gnostic Okay, podcast. so we're not Gnostic. <laughs> and so we are not disembodied souls. We actually right. have bodies that and cultures that God put us in. I, I'm um, making the colorblind mistake, aren't You're I? making the yeah. colorblind mistake. Oh, yeah, yeah, it. yeah. So I, I think, it. you know, it's. I think our cultures are beautiful. I think that, you know, I'll quote James Cone, um, who says, Blackness is the image of God in black people. Right. And so if, if we really want to honor the image of God in people and also allow people's cultural identities to shed light on who God is, then we need people's cultural identities to be intact. This is the 200 Churches podcast. My name is Jeff Cady. I am here in the opulent and luxurious 200 Churches podcast studio. And I'm excited to share with you a conversation that Johnny and I had with Dr. Christina Cleveland, a delightful conversation where I learned a lot that I did not know before that conversation. Now, I want to locate this meeting for you. I don't know if you remember, but the boy's name was Tamir Rice. Tamir was a 12-year-old black boy who lived in Cleveland, Ohio. He was shot by a police officer because he was outside playing, brandishing a toy gun. Despite the 911 caller indicating that the gun was probably fake two times and saying that he is probably a juvenile, but this information was not relayed to officers on the initial dispatch. So the 911 dispatcher was suspended for eight days, but Tamir Rice was shot and killed for the rest of his life. That was in November of 2014. Two months before that, Johnny and I were in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We got the opportunity to sit down with Christina Cleveland and talk with her about her then new book, Disunity in Christ. It was a fascinating conversation for me. I know that Johnny totally enjoyed it. Now, again, to to just give you the context, at the time, I was a 51-year-old white pastor. I was sitting with a 28-year-old millennial pastor, and we were talking to a 33-year-old millennial college professor, earned PhD, social psychologist, And my goal for that conversation, it wasn't to pick apart what I agreed or disagreed with. My goal, personally, my goal for the conversation was to learn from both Christina and Johnny, was to learn from them. Now, if you were to go to Christina's page today online, 
she has a welcome that says this, I'm Dr. Christina Cleveland. Since the body and soul are interwoven, I integrate social science, research, and spirituality as I pursue liberation from white supremacy and patriarchy. Now, right there, some of you may be turned off and pushed aside from this episode. I want to really challenge you. If we only listen to people that we feel comfortable about and that we agree with, man, we never learn anything. In fact, she's just written a book. The book has come out this year, 2022. We don't talk about the book, obviously, because our conversation was in 2014. It was in 2014, long before George Floyd, long before the events of 2020, long before the pandemic, long before the 2016 election cycle, long before a lot of what in our modern day has been so polarizing, we sat down with Christina Cleveland. Now, this year, she wrote a book called this, God is a Black Woman. And the intro to this says, in this timely, much-needed book, theologian, social psychologist, and activist Christina Cleveland recounts her personal journey to dismantle the cultural white male God and uncover the sacred black feminine, introducing a black female God who imbues us with hope, healing, and liberating presence. For years, Christina Cleveland spoke about racial reconciliation to congregations, justice organizations, and colleges, but she increasingly felt that she could no longer trust in the God she'd been implicitly taught to worship, a white male God who preferentially empowered white men despite his claim to love all people, a God who clearly did not relate to, advocate for, or affirm a black woman like Christina. Now, I'll stop there. There's so much in that that I just see differently. However, I know that if I were to read this book, I would learn so much about other perspectives and other opinions and the way of looking at the world that would be different than mine and reasons for looking at the world that would be different than mine. And I would come away from it with a greater understanding and a greater appreciation of my own views and my own thoughts and perspectives on the scriptures and on who God is. It would be actually enhanced by reading something like this. Having sat down and talked with Christina, understanding her heart, knowing her desire for God, she's a different person than me with a very different life experience that I could learn from. And again, the goal isn't agreeing or disagreeing. The goal is growth. The goal is also unity with other believers. So all these things are are things that I think about as I consider this conversation that we had with Christina. And you'll you'll hear me have a couple uh, very obvious uh, learning moments (laughs) in talking uh, with Johnny and with Christina. So let's go ahead and listen to this. I know you'll enjoy it. I know you'll be challenged by it. And I know that I believe that you'll be better for having listened to it. And I'll catch up with you after the conversation. Here it is. It's really good to have Christina Cleveland with us today on the podcast. And Christina, you were somebody that Johnny ferreted out 
through your book, ferreted out through your book, Disunity in Christ. He came into my office one day and said, can we have her on the podcast? Which so, was permission, but also, do you think that she'll actually agree to be on the podcast? That was the other part. And of I that think question. everybody will agree. So <laughs> that's true. He does. Welcome, Christina. <laughs> Thank um, you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and Johnny? I'm going to have to rely on you to carry this conversation no today. So, Christina, where are you from? Just tell us a little bit of your story. Thanks. It's great to be on the podcast. And I actually have a really special place in my heart for small churches because my parents planted a small church when I was in third grade. And I um, was a pretty significant, you know, when you're a PK, you kind of do everything. So Amen. I've Amen. almost pastored a small church myself. Um, <laughs> and um, my, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and um, loved growing up there. And the church my parents planted was multi-ethnic. So I got thinking about Very cultural cool. issues in church really early on. And now I'm at um, Bethel University as an associate professor of reconciliation studies. Which is so cool that now we were talking about this beforehand. If you own the book, uh, you should, and you should read it. If you don't own it, you should buy it. But Mm -hmm. on the back, your bio talks about you're at St. Catherine. I'm sure the second edition, which is coming soon, will update. But so that's what I was expecting. Oh, third edition. I only have to see. I'm on the first edition. That's the problem. (laughs) But um, when I got the email from your assistant, she said, you can meet Christina here. And I clicked on the map and it was Bethel University, which is now this is where Jeff and I went to seminary. And we are actually sitting here in the seminary building. It's like flashback, uh, flashback to our seminary days, you know, a whole two weeks ago. I'm breaking out in cold sweats. (laughs) So it was awesome. I just felt like, hey, it's cool. It's meant to be. And you were gracious enough to accept our invitation, which we're very well, I'm appreciative I'm happy to for. be here. <laughs> yeah. And I like that. I didn't know that story about your, your parents and uh, planning a small church, but you are right. I was talking to a friend today about this that, you know, I've been in the ministry two years, but I was a pastor's kid. So really, I've been in the ministry for 28 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's the truth. I mean, the kids do... Everything, yeah. yeah, which is a joy, and you learn a lot. But exactly, yeah, you certainly get ministry experience at a really young age. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. So, Christina, uh, you wrote this book, Disunity in Christ. Now, it's a whole book, so I don't expect you to give me the Cliff's notes. But if you could just big idea thesis, maybe sure. What is the point? What what drove you to this? And so, what's mm-hmm. your what's your heart in the book? Yeah, I mean, I've been in the church long enough to see that there that people have a really hard time connecting with people who are different than them. Um, and I've talked um, in my work coaching pastors on issues of reconciliation across all sorts of cultural divisions. Um, I've found that a lot of pastors have their hearts in the right place, and they want to create a welcoming environment. They want to have um, deep and lasting connections between um different cultural groups in their community. And every time they try, they get really frustrated and they're a little bit befuddled as to why this is so hard. Um, And so I took um, a lot of the research that I had done as a social psychologist to sort of just illuminate the processes. Like here's kind of what's happening beneath the surface. This is why you keep running into brick walls. This is why it's so hard for you to get people in your church to be open-minded or to be thoughtful about the way that they perceive other groups or even to take steps towards other groups. Right. And so a lot of people kind of have the theological underpinnings. You know, they can quote Revelation 7, 9, like every nation <laughs> and tongue will come together or, yeah. you know, they can talk about maybe the reconciling work that Jesus did on the cross. But in terms of practically understanding why people just like to hang out with people who are just like them. Right. And make assumptions about people who are different. <laughs> yeah. A lot of pastors don't have that knowledge. And that's where social psychology comes in. 
And as I read the book, I thought, I mean, and, and I'd read your blog before that. Uh, so I knew kind of your, what you were about with the social psychology. And I, and I thought, this is such an angle that the church needs to hear that we don't think about, right? That, mm-hmm. well, you know, we have good theology in the Bible, so mm-hmm. we're all going to get along and sing Kumbaya. Yeah. But you kind of talk about there are cultural and social forces you know, mm-hmm. that are kind and of most of them are apart. happening outside of our conscious awareness. And that, and yeah. so we don't even know they're happening. But once we become aware of them, we can be on the lookout for them and they lose a lot of their power. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm grateful. Certainly, I think um, the work that's been done in reconciliation in the church has been mostly theological. And so there's been a lot of groundwork, which I'm thankful for. So I could kind of just jump in assuming that people care. Right. That's good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so there's sociology. And then there's mm-hmm. social psychology. Right. Yeah. And I guessed, and I said, well, Johnny, I think sociology is how people are and how society is. And a social psychologist says why. Um, kind of. Yeah. You know, I think. Um, but not quite. You're being <laughs> that's gracious. a really good answer. That's a really good try. Well, um, why, why and how maybe the classroom well, are they different? Here, yeah. yeah. And actually, I can speak to that because I was a sociology major as an undergrad. So I actually know a bit about sociology. Um, sociology, um, might ask some of the similar questions that psychology asks or social psychology asks. Sociologists are typically looking at, um, entire groups at one time. And you're right in the sense that a lot of times sociologists work is more descriptive. So kind of just helping people understand what's going on. Um, a social psychologist is interested in looking at what the average person is going to do. So looking more at the individual yeah. in the social context. Gotcha. Yeah. So when I say in my book, this is what people do, I'm, ba- I'm looking, I'm looking at research that says this is what the average person in an experiment would do. And there's a lot. Yeah. I mean, some of this mm-hmm. research is super interesting. And, and you point out in your book, some of the older research is even more interesting because yeah. they didn't have ethics. Yeah. Which, you know, that they could do more. You can get away it. with a, you could <laughs> get away with a lot back in before the seventies. Yeah. yeah. But it's, I mean, it's really, mm-hmm. I mean, it is interesting to read. And, and I felt convicted as I read because, you know, we have a, we, uh, we live in a town where there's 14 churches and I can get a, you know, almost like a mentality of, well, obviously our church is, the best we're the best church clearly we're the best church (laughs) and so and then it what that does is then it starts to drive me away from other churches well i could feel all that happening but as i read this i realized oh this is why it's happening there's names for this and none of it is good yeah so i think we think it's harm i mean yeah that's one of the big takeaways of my book is we think that our separation from other members of the body of christ um is harmless. Like we think, oh, it's okay that there are 14 churches. Like everyone kind of has their own shtick. And as long as I'm not like picketing in front of their church or like (laughs) throwing eggs at their church or out like sort of openly mocking them, it's okay. Right. Um, And I think we really underestimate what homogeneity and separation can do to us. And I think, you know, it's once we set up that separation, it's almost impossible not to also sent some hostility towards them, do some competitive comparing, um, wanting to really think that we're the best. Right. Yeah. So I'm thinking about a small church pastor in a town of Mm 5,000 with 10 churches or more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And having to think about, you used a 50 cent word, homogeneity, Homogeneity. which means what? Um, Homogeneity is just a really fancy word for um, everyone's the same. 
So monoculturalism. So I'd say a homogenous church is a church that is um, mostly white or mostly black. And then we say that's racially homogenous. Um, right. uh, or we could say a church is politically homogenous. Everyone's Republican or everyone's okay. Democrat. Um, so, socioeconomically homogenous. Everyone's middle class. Right, right. Yeah. So you're saying, you would say then that we need to look at that, mm-hmm. ask ourselves why, yeah. and actually consider it maybe not a very good thing. Yeah. I mean, homo- the only thing homogeneity is really good for is church growth. But if you're a small church pastor, you're not really worried about that as much, potentially. Ooh, we like you, Christina. <laughs> yeah. We talk sure. about that a lot. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so homo- I mean, the whole church growth strategy in this was the 70s, um, the homogenous unit pr- principle, HUP, where, you know, it was, if you identify your group that you want to target and then you just go after them, you're going to grow your church if you have pretty good marketing and you understand your This is something that target. they told people to oh, do absolutely. actively. Yeah, it's called the HUP, the the homo- oh homogenous unit principle. And so if you, it, it, a lot of like old school um, missiology books, ecclesiology books and church growth books um, talk <laughs> specifically about wow. this. It came out of the, um, out of California in the seventies. And so um, this is, I mean, this is all about marketing sure. and it's all about, understanding your target audience and so Mm. if you want to grow your church at homogeneity is great because then you only have to pick certain songs a certain style of preaching because every everyone's gonna for the most part appreciate the approach that you're taking homogeneity is also it's also good for group identity in some ways because we can all get around the idea that we're all republicans or we're all middle class or we're all white even if we're not explicitly saying that we would never explicitly yeah yeah but (laughs) but this idea that you know i go to church and it's comfortable and everyone's like me right um but uh, beyond that homogeneity is mostly bad at least from a social Mm -hmm. psychological point of view um it leads to distrust of other groups i mean it's mainly because of the lack of cross-group interaction like the the less we interact with people who are different than us the more we can start to get ideas in our head about what they're really like without even actually interacting with them when you talked about the survey uh they did with they did it with 20 somethings and they asked them about uh, elderly people, yeah. <laughs> right? Then you think your in-group is diverse, mm-hmm. right? And you think the out-group is, you know, homogenous. homogenous it's all the same. Right? Yeah. They're all the same. Mm-hmm. And then they did the same thing. They asked the yeah. older people about the younger people. And I was like, oh, yeah, all those youngsters are the same. Yeah. That's just, that's mind-blowing. And then you also point out that even even if you you are one church, you know, you, you brought up the hipster churches, right? Yeah. Like this mm-hmm. hipster church looks just like this other hipster church and they still will find something yeah. to to mm-hmm. separate themselves out. A more handsome pastor, I believe, was yeah. one of the examples. Yeah. <laughs> now, Dover does have the most handsome pastor in town. I will say that. Yeah, you. I'm talking about myself. Yeah, oh, no, okay. I was... I was... <laughs> Well, at least your wife would agree, probably. There, yes. Yeah. I hope so. <laughs> you said something about if we all just hang around people that are just like us, mm-hmm. that's not a good thing. Mm-mm. Now, when I was growing up, during this church growth movement that you spoke of, mm-hmm. and by the way, they would take umbrage. They would say, it's about reaching people, Christina, mm-hmm. not church growth. Yeah. So oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Because every number is a person. Yeah. 
Reaching people yeah. who only <laughs> not who, who only look like you though is that the only people yeah, you're reaching? Exactly. Yeah. Well, exactly, and that just perpetuates mm-hmm. right yeah. these divisions within the body of Christ. So when I was growing up, we were told ecumenism was bad. Mm-hmm. You know, you were not supposed to fellowship with churches that believe differently than you. Right. Mm-hmm. They would poison the well. Mm-hmm. And you're saying that is not true. Oh, I mean, they could poison the well. <laughs> I mean, I think there's risk involved, um, but I think that I keep going back to the metaphor of the body of Christ. And so I think that not only is homogeneity bad from a social psychological point of view, I would argue that it's bad from a theological point of view. I Mm. I, I don't think that you can participate in the local body of Christ if you're siloing your church off from other churches and you're more afraid of what they might do to you than you're attracted to the fact that they're part of the body of Christ and that you share ahead. And so I think that we lack kind of a, um, I'd say we lack an ecclesiastical and also probably a, th- a theological humility towards other groups that the body, that the metaphor of the body of Christ requires of us. It requir- um, that metaphor requires, requires theological humility and, yeah, and ecclesiastical. So I would say, you know, that metaphor is saying that if I'm the hand, I have to stay connected to the other, to the rest of the body or else I will atrophy because we share a head because we share a head and I because other parts of the body also give me life. I mean, if you just think about the way the body works, right. if I cut my hand off, it will die. I mean, it can't survive on its own without the rest of the body, even if it hates my elbow, you know, or it disagrees with my yeah. elbow, or it thinks my elbow speaks a weird language, or um, is contributing to all the crime in my neighborhood or whatever. It still needs the elbow. And so I think we are being really arrogant when we say, you know, we don't really need to interact with them at all. We don't even need to listen to them. We don't need to, as far as I'm concerned, they're dead. I mean, and that's what, that's how a lot of churches operate, right. including small churches. So, I mean, I think mega churches, certainly they're the, they, they can be the big bad wolf. Um, but I will give mega churches credit in, in one way in that mega churches are contributing to the, the multi-ethnic church growth in the country, partly because mm-hmm. they attract everyone in the area. Mm-hmm. And so if you go to a mega church, you're much more likely to interact with people who are different than you than if you go to a small church. Right. So Simply because mega churches are more diverse. That's, I mean, that doesn't necessarily say the quality of those interactions are going to be really um, great or deep, but in terms of being in church with people who are different than you, that's much that's going to happen more often in a mega church. So, so the, yeah. you, you didn't quite get on it, but when I was reading, you know, you talk about the gold standard effect, which is mm-hmm. nice, yeah. nice of you to make it that the, the actual words for it were gigantic and I, you know, <laughs> I struggle. Yeah. So the gold standard effect, right? That, well, of course we're right. Now this is human nature, right? I wouldn't believe something if yeah. I didn't think it was right. Mm-hmm. But we, instead of just saying, I think it's right, we make it the gold standard. Like it's, it's not just right in my mind. It's right. Like it's for everyone. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, how is that? Well, I think it's clear how that's limiting our kingdom potential, right? As Christians mm-hmm. is that we're yeah. disunified. But I wonder, you talk about humility and postmodern is kind of a bugaboo for a lot of pastors. But mm-hmm. one thing, as I learned about postmodernism throughout undergrad and, and then at seminary was that if you can infuse a, your theology with a little bit of postmodernism, then you gain humility. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you see, I mean, how can we be more humble as we approach theology and then this issue of, you know, disunity, yeah. how can we infuse some humility into our interactions and, and our reading of scripture? Yeah, you know, I th- well, I think 
you know, a lot of my humility comes from, um, well, I wouldn't say I have a lot of humility, but, <laughs> but the hum- the little bit of humility that I have comes from, um, the, just the sort of theologically understanding the, the, or the, certainly the way that I think about the body of Christ, but then also the, the humility that Christ showed. And so, mm. you know, I, I look at, I go back to Philippians two, gosh, probably at least once a week, just as I'm, uh, as a reconciler looking to see what Jesus did. And, um, his example on earth. I mean, we talk so much about the incarnation and how Jesus humbled himself and came down right. to earth, but what is more relatable to me as someone who will never um, be able to be man and God at the same time, or even man really actually as a woman, <laughs> um, it, it's more relatable for me to see the way that, that Jesus interacts with people on earth right? and the humility that Jesus shows on earth is what's really powerful to me. He's listening to other people. He's crossing almost every significant interaction we see is Jesus crossing some significant cultural boundary, but it's never as the person who has the high status coming in to say, look at me, look what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. He always takes the more humble posture and says, what I'm leaning into what you have to say. I'm, I'm, I'm going to put myself in your shoes so I can understand what, what the world looks like from your point of view. Right. And it's powerful. I mean, churches who follow the, um, the liturgical calendar of reading actually got a gift the day after the Ferguson, um, like the week after Michael Brown was, um, was killed in Ferguson because the passage that week was, um, in Luke where, um, Jesus is interacting with the Canaanite woman. And that's like such a cross cultural gift of, right. to be able to preach that Sunday and make it relevant to what happened in Ferguson because Jesus in that moment, was interacting with this Canaanite woman who's the low class person. She's the one who doesn't have a voice. She's calling out to Jesus. Everyone is saying, please, like, just ignore her because they're just so used to ignoring those people. Right. And they're always clamoring about something. Why are they upset now? Right. And Jesus stops and he listens to her. He looks at the world from her perspective. Then he actually makes a joke about her oppression when he says like, Oh, um, but you know, she says, please master have mercy on me. He's like, well, why would, um, why would I give the food to, why would I give the crumbs to oh, you? Right, and I think right. I should just, you know, I'm going to give the crumbs to the dogs, implying that she's a, un, implying that she's a dog, but it's kind of this tongue in cheek joke where he's like, I get that people think that you are scum. And she actually feels affirmed by that, you know? Right. And which is pretty amazing because I think cross cultural communication, period, is hard. Cross cultural humor is even (laughs) even harder. You know, so it says something. (laughs) It says something about how Jesus was really good Mm -hmm. at identifying with, seeing the world from, and standing with people who are nothing like him and perhaps are, were even more disenfranchised than he was right. as a Jewish man. And so I look at that and I think that's a lot of humility. <laughs> Maybe I can take that posture yeah. towards other people and lean in and say, Hey, what are you clamoring about? What is your perspective on anything? Yeah. So. I think that, you know, that, that whole point of learning from someone else's perspective, that, that seems to me to be the most important piece of all this. And and you wrote, um, I keep coming back to the book, but uh, you kind of say pastors will get involved in uh, reconciliation type of work, and then they 
they have it blow up in their face in some way, right? Mm-hmm. There's all yeah. sorts of tensions created yeah. and everything like that. But mm-hmm. you kind of you kind of point out it's because the people who come into it, they don't actually want to change the way that they view their status or the status of the other. Mm-hmm. It, they all want to keep that intact, but just get together with people who maybe aren't like them or don't look like them. Or sure. Whatever. Yeah. I mean, you typically, when people say they want reconciliation, and I'm saying typically people who come from majority culture, white people, when they say they want reconciliation or diversity, what they really say is they want a lot of really happy, optimistic, easygoing people of color around them. Yeah, just chill. Yeah, who who are just happy to go with the way things already are. Right. Um preferably really cultural culturally similar, you know. So right. please don't be poor or please don't, <laughs> you know, please don't have a different political viewpoint right. or please don't be militant, you know, but so actually when you look at multi-ethnic churches in in the body of Christ now it's typically a bunch of middle class upper middle class people with master's degrees who kind of look different you know but it, otherwise right. it's, they're reading the same books they're reading they're watching sure. the same TV shows and so really you know unfortunately what we're looking for is not really what Christ has for us and not and not really where the richness is too I'd argue when I put, sorry Jeff I just gotta keep going. I'm like loving every second of this. But well, when I, I, I just, I need to say, okay, I need to say as a white person, <laughs> what we really are saying <laughs> to other people, to other, to minorities is, why can't you just be like us? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. and that, yeah, and right? that's where the power issues come into play because I think oftentimes when people do make these steps towards unity, it's saying you need to come on our turf, on our terms, speak our language, sing our songs. Right. We're still going to be in charge, but welcome. And then <laughs> right, they wonder right. why people don't really want to be a part of that. Right. Yeah. yeah. So we're talking about this thing that you talked about, cultural identity. How if I think, I may think that uh, reconciliation is when you leave your cultural identity and join my cultural identity. Now we're reconciled. We're all like me. Mm-hmm. And instead, I was thinking and telling Johnny in discussion that maybe we have to all leave our cultural identities and together join this identity called the kingdom of God. Would you think that's somewhat close? I think that's moving in the right direction. I think that it needs to go further, though, for there to be equity and for us to really, I think, understand what God's calling us. So um, two things to say that. One, um, we're not Gnostic. At least I don't think we're Gnostic. Are we Gnostic? This is a non-Gnostic Okay, podcast. so we're not Gnostic. <laughs> and so we are not disembodied souls. We actually right. have bodies that and cultures that God put us in. I, I'm um, making the colorblind mistake. Aren't you're I? making the yeah. colorblind mistake. Oh, yeah, yeah, it. yeah. So <laughs> I, I think, it. you know, it's, I think our cultures are beautiful. I think that, you know, I'll quote James Cone, um, who says blackness is the image of God in black people. Right. And so if, if we really want to honor the image of God in people and also allow people's cultural identities to shed light on who God is, then we need people's cultural identities to be intact. Um, I would say that people need to hold on to their cultural identities, but they also need to adopt a superordinate or common cultural identity of being members of the body of Christ. So the way I talk about it in the book is offense and defense on a football team. So you can have your identity as an offensive lineman, but your larger identity 
I like it. Is being on the football team. And everything yeah. that you're doing as an offensive lineman is in service to the larger It's the body team. metaphor. Exactly. It's the body in metaphor in another way. And I, the, the second thing I would say to that is also when you're working. So I think part of the job of a pastor or any sort of leader is to help people understand that the world is not a, a, an even playing field, kind of sticking right. to the football metaphor. Um, and so when that's the case, I think it's important for, um, obviously some, someone's gonna have to kind of leave their turf in order to find common ground somewhere. If this idea is we're all going to come together, I think that for historical reasons and for enduring inequality issues in the United States, it needs to be the majority group that gives up their turf to go to the other group. And so I wouldn't, because I think other the other way around, you're kind of keeping the power and balance in play where you're saying like, oh, the larger white church is, since we have the, the facilities or something, you right, know, right. Um, everyone can come to us. Um, but then it still is kind of that mentality of we're kind of running the show. We're being hospitable. We, we you know, everything's right. more or less going to be comfortable for us. Um, and I think that the the biblical model, which a great book as a follow up to mine um, that really looks at this is called Radical Reconciliation. It's written by Alan Busack and Curtis DeYoung, and it pulls no punches. So get ready for it. <laughs> okay. um, but really, they say the biblical model is for the historically majority culture, wealthier culture, more powerful culture to say, we're going to actually go and sit at the feet of this other culture and learn from them and let let things be done on their terms. Now you talked yeah. about you you wrote a little bit not and this isn't in the book but you've written about um uh big churches, suburban churches going in and planting urban churches mm-hmm. and you yeah. call it plantation mentality. Urban church plantations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, which and yeah. I read that and just thought, man, this is so spot on and and you you kind of said, look, if you've not had a person of color or an urban right minister mm-hmm. mentor you. You you're not in any position to try to come into to that culture to that culture. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. And pastors, we do not want to hear that. Okay, because I am ordained by the Lord. Yeah, you're called <laughs> to minister to you're people. Called, you're gifted. Yeah, you yeah. know, I think I think that's the great. I mean, pastors are great because I mean, I feel like you have to be a little bit. Egomaniacal to yeah. even plant your own church because you have to be like, hey, people are going to follow me. Like, this is going to be a thing. You know what I mean? Exactly. It takes a special person, um, I think, to do that. So that's one of the things I like about pastors is they, they're they like, charge forward. Let's do this. Yeah. But I think there's, again, going back to that humility, wait a second, um, just because I have an MDiv or I took a class on cross-cultural competence or right. I've read some books does not make me qualified to minister to everyone. Right. And I think white pastors haven't ever heard that before. Yeah. Well, yeah. nobody, so. I mean, nobody tells us anything. We're... And I, I yeah. want to say to those of you listening, I heard the word plantation a few minutes ago, <laughs> right? And, and I'm glad we have you, Jeff. To... <laughs> well, it's easy for us. It's easy for us typical, and, and I'm putting myself into this, us typical white pastors who yeah. are a little bit older to hear buzzwords that we immediately, our defenses go up. Right. Like, well, why would you think I would think that? Right, and, and I just want to encourage you. We, I've learned best when I just put my defenses down and I actually listen to somebody very different from me. Because Christina, you talked about the body. You know, you've got the elbow, you've got the knee, the foot, mm-hmm. the hand, and we we we're gonna, we're going to work best together when we respect each other when we recognize that the other exists mm-hmm. and it's a legitimate part of the body and just because it has something different than what i have i just want to encourage you 
uh, don't don't let your defenses go up because when yeah. our defenses go up, we're not learning. We're actually mm-hmm. preserving our ignorance. So I will say <laughs> that would be me. If yeah. I, when my defenses go up, I preserve my ignorance. Mm-hmm. I would like to dispel my ignorance and gain a little bit more understanding. Yeah, yeah. and I would add to that too. Um, that I ha- I play I I have two really strong spiritual gifts. One is prophet. The other one's like more teacher. And so I think if anyone who's listening to this podcast um, goes to my website, they'll see there's a whole page on resources where I'm super practical. So certainly <laughs> in that in that post, my my goal was to just call attention to this yeah. issue that's widespread. And I mean. It it, that post went everywhere and it really struck a chord because it's actually happening. And so I was kind of more just calling out the problem in that post. And and I was using strong language intentionally because the problem is a big problem. Now, which, um, which post is the that? The Urban Church Plantations post. Yeah. Yeah. The one that Johnny just mentioned. That's super good. Well, yeah. we'll, we'll put it on. We'll put it on. <laughs> sure. Our, on yeah. There you go. Yeah. For sure. For yeah. This. And I think, you know, um, I think that's a good challenge for people to, to read. But I also just want to follow that up and say, um, if you read that and you're like, okay, I feel overwhelmed because right. mm. um, I feel defensive or I feel overwhelmed. And this is a huge problem that she's just pointing out. Go to my resources page because I have all these super practical things on what pastors can do to start awesome. addressing this in their congregations. Oh, you have yeah. practical stuff. That's on your website <laughs> that small church pastors can access? And it's all free. For free? Dr. Cleveland. That's quite great. No, Dr. Cleveland, you did not say that you had a PhD. I do. So mm-hmm. well, I wanna, she said she's a professor. I want to, yeah. yeah, but not don't every we assume professor. That? <laughs> I don't know, but the I good just want to put respect where it's due. Well, thank you. <laughs> Doctor, thank you for offering these resources sure. to our people. Now, do you, do you love pastors? I do. You love Jesus? I do. But sometimes Bam. you use strong language to get across a very important point. Sometimes people need to hear some strong language, Jeff. Johnny, I'm a, I'm a peace-loving. Oh, pastor. come on! <laughs> peace-loving or peace-mongering? Which one, Jeff? Ooh, I'm a peace-monger. Yeah, I don't want to be that. So anyway, thank you for offering that yeah. to yeah. the pastors Absolutely. that are listening. Now, I want to just real quick, we, we might you might be listening right now, and, and you're thinking, yes, 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 this is amazing, but... You might be in a context like Jeff and I find ourselves in where it's, I mean, our community, is, we are some white folk, you know what I'm saying? And there's not a lot else. And when I picked up this book, at first I thought it would be all about uh, racial diversity in the church, multi-ethnic. And it's actually not very it much is about not that. Mm-hmm. Exact, that's a piece mm-hmm. and an important piece, but you're talking socioeconomic, you're talking gender, you're, talk, you're talking... Political, theological. Po- yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. And we all, as pastors, have that in our community and that in our church. And as I read, I thought, this is good for pastors dealing with pastors of other churches and other churches in town, but it's also good for pastors to read to deal with their own church absolutely, and what they mm-hmm. have going on inside their own walls. Yeah. You know, I, I probably would say a couple things to that one. Um, I think every pastor should actually go to like the census website mm-hmm. and actually look at the, the racial ethnic demographics in their community. Cause I think most people would be surprised to find that it's more diverse than you think. I think we don't often see, cultural groups that are really there. That's very true. So that's one thing. Um, 
And another thing that I would say is a lot of pastors come to me and they're like, oh, we really want to have more ethnic diversity at our church. And my first question to them is, well, are you honoring the diverse people that are already in your midst? Like, are you really good at, you know, if you're a predominantly middle class church, are you really good at, at honoring the image of God and people who have financial need? Right. Um, I wrote a big post about that in my um on my blog too, about getting outside, looking outside the middle-class box, even in the ways that we look at leaders and um, that kind of stuff. Are you honoring single people in your church? Are you sure. honoring older people in your church? I mean, there's so many cultural groups in your church that m- more often than not are probably being dishonored. People with maybe some sort of mental um, um, disability, a physical disability. And so I say, honor the image of God and the diverse people you have. Um, first. <laughs> and then worry about the multi-ethnic. And then worry about the multi-ethnic. Because yeah. that's going to be even harder. Yep. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. I mean, if you can't, if you're not an honoring, reconciling community, right. period, mono-ethnically, then you're never going to be able to handle a different ethnic group coming in. Was the term know? cognitive generosity? Yeah. Was that the term? In my book, I use yeah. that term. T- talk yeah. about that term for a minute sure. and what you meant by that. Yeah. Well, I, you know, kind of going back to these, um, these perceptions and assumptions that we make of other groups based on the fact that we don't know them. I mean, just when we don't know people, we just automatically um, have these misperceptions. And that's because we're kind of going on autopilot. We're being cognitive misers. That's the term that we use in social psychology. We don't want to waste any of our precious mental energy on actually stopping and saying, let me let me get to know this person as an individual, maybe in the context of their group, but first and foremost as an individual, as opposed to just making um, an assumption about them based on what we think we know about them. And so um, I've been using the term cognitive generosity. Like let's get away from being cognitive misers. Let's, right. let's exert the mental energy <laughs> to actually engage in cross-cultural encounters that might tire us out mentally, but are going to be much more honoring to the person because we're looking to, we're looking to see who they really are. Yeah. Yeah. I took our youth group some years ago to a different culture and we spent 15, 18 days there. And in the second week I realized I like my culture. I miss my culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? So <laughs> it is hard work. Yep. To be among people who mm-hmm. are different than you, mm-hmm. but they also have so much to contribute yep. that we just never learn when we, again, wall ourselves off into our birds of a feather. And it groups. gets easier. And it gets easier, too. So it's really, <laughs> it's really mentally exhausting at first. But the, it's, the, you know, the, it's kind of like a muscle. Like the more you work it, the easier it gets. And so. So, Christina. Close this podcast with some words to small church pastors from everything that you've learned uh, about uh, what you've written in this book, Disunity in Christ. What are, what are just a few things you could leave our pastors with things that they can do things that they can Mm -hmm. follow up this podcast episode with? Sure. Um, You know, first I'd say go to my website and check out those resources because there's just so much to think about and to implement in your church. And what is the address? It's just ChristinaCleveland.com. But it's Christina with an E. With an E. (laughs) ChristinaCleveland.com. Yes, Christina with an E.com. And then um, I would also say think, you know, think small, like you don't have to start this huge program. Um, it could be one small step. Um, you know, growing up, my parents were really creative. They were fairly ecumenical, but also very creative with, um, 
in childcare in the summer. And so when we were growing up, we went to every vacation Bible school in my town (laughs) (laughs) Um, because it was kind of like free or cheap babysitting essentially (laughs) um, from like nine to noon every day. And my mom was on board with that. And she was, it was very smart of her. Um, One thing I picked up though, even as a little kid was everyone uses the same VBS curriculum. So by the second week, you know, I knew all the songs, I knew all the crafts, I knew, I knew, I knew where all the skits were going. (laughs) And so we, you know, we'd go to like eight different VBSs every summer and every church is doing the exact same thing, which is so interesting. Cause I'm like, if you're a small church pastor, I don't understand why you can't do this with two or three other churches. (laughs) You're all using the same curriculum. I mean, you know, so I think just thinking like, what's one small thing that we can do as a church that will connect us with another body in our town. Hmm. And it could be something that simple. Like let's just do VBS together. Yeah. It doesn't have to be, um, but then your you know, mom wouldn't have had the same number. Of, I know. You know well, we grew, I grew up in a large enough town that I still think there'd be plenty <laughs> oh, of people okay. to go to. But I mean, if you're in one of those towns where there are 14 churches or there are 10 yeah. churches, um, or even if you're not, even if you're a small church in a big city, find a church in your neighborhood that's maybe two, three blocks away and yeah. say, let's do this together or let's do an outreach together or, you know, let's start doing some collaborative things together that we're already doing, but let's just do it together and learn from each other. That's well, awesome. I just want to encourage you. Keep doing what you're doing yes. because race in America will continue to be an issue probably for the rest of our lives. But you personally, Christina, can make a difference in people's lives. I mean, just our time here, I mean, I'm learning and growing and there are other pastors. So keep doing what you're doing. I applaud you for it. And I Thank really you. appreciate your joining us today. Johnny, yep. you want to land the plane? Yeah, well, I'm just yeah, I'm just grateful you said yes to being on the podcast uh, and that we were able to sit down in person because it's so much better. I mean, over <laughs> Skype, it just is not as good. But yeah, I would just echo Jeff. Keep on doing what you're doing, and if if you're listening, you know, go. Well, you're obviously you're listening. Go to ChristinaCleveland.com, <laughs> pick up this book, and then wait for whatever's coming next. Is there another book coming? Yeah, I have a book contract already on privilege in the church, privilege and power. I'm so pumped. Uh, so anyway, it's called <laughs> the Priesthood of the Privileged. I'm writing it right now. And and for all those of you who might think there is no such thing as privilege. Then read the book. Read my blog. Think again. (laughs) Well, thanks so much, Christina, for being on the 200 Churches podcast. Thanks. Well, there you have it. One of the most interesting conversations I've been able to have since we started the podcast almost 10 years ago, and that was in our second year of the podcast. So, Christina, again, thank you for joining us and for having that conversation and the fact that eight years later I can share it again. And uh, I think that so many of us can grow and learn just a little bit more. Again, the, the purpose of the podcast is ministry encouragement for pastors of small churches. And I hope that you've been encouraged by this conversation. And we'll be back next week with a fresh current 2022 conversation on the 200 Churches podcast.